Every single one of us was pursued when we didn't deserve it. Every single one of us has been embraced by a savior who is faithful and true. That's his name. And you need to remind yourself that God is right there with you. You need to remind yourself that God makes promises and that God is faithful to us. Precious promises. The promises of God in Christ are the life of faith and the quickeners of prayer. Friends, do you believe that promise? That God offers the promise of transformation if we surrender to Jesus Christ. such a great series. I've been so encouraged just to be reminded myself of these promises that God has made to his children. We've said that we really have our entire relationship with God that is entirely built on these promises that he has given uh, to us. And so as we turn to the promise for today, I want to take you down a little uh, stroll of history lane. If you would come back with me to the year 1914 as we consider the story of a man named Sir Ernest Shackleton. Uh, Shackleton made several expeditions to be the first person to reach Antarctica and the South Pole, the first person ever uh, to be able to do that. Of course, as you might guess, it wasn't easy, and uh, before he made it there, there were several expeditions that didn't quite uh, make it all the way. For example, one time uh, his, his ship, his particular ship, got caught in the ice, and they had to spend like an entire winter on the ice that winter, very treacherous place to be down there. Uh, a second time, he he was uh, traveling uh, with his uh, companions, with his men, and, and they got within 100 miles of the South Pole. They were almost there, but he realized that, that if he continued, that he was going to lose some of his men if he kept pushing ahead. So he, he turned around uh, simply to save his men. He had this reputation that he cared for his men, and they knew that he cared for them. A third time, his ship actually got caught in the ice, and, and the ice slowly began to crush his his ship, and so they had to, of course, abandon ship as it was being crushed to smithereens. And they actually took pictures that have been preserved to this day that you can see on the internet. The ship was named the Endurance, and after it was crushed, they they somehow managed to make it out to Elephant Island, and they they had a couple of lifeboats there that were left. And he said, "The only way that this is going to uh, work, the only way we're going to survive here, is that one of us has to go back in a lifeboat and get some more help, uh, and one of us has to cross over about 900 miles." of some of the most violent ocean on the planet. We're talking about 30, 35-foot waves down there at the tip of South America around the Antarctica. It's just crazy uh, the kind of thing that you find down there. Uh, but Shackleton said, we're not going to all make it. Somebody's going to go. We're, we're not going to survive. And so, of course, he volunteered uh, to go get help. So he left his men, and, and before he left, he said these six famous words. I will be back for you. I will be back for you. So off he went uh, in what became really a miracle of navigation. They've made you know, uh, shows about this on the History Channel. It's just an amazing feat that he accomplished. He makes it to Prince George Whaling Station. He manages to convince some of the people working there that they ought to go back and help some of his men. And, and they say, okay, fine, we'll go help these guys. You should stay here and rest, though, after what you just did. He said, no way, I'm coming right back with you. So he turns around right after that uh, grueling voyage, and he goes back and he finds all of his men. He, he, he lost none. Friends, here's why I'm telling you this. Almost 2,000 years ago, right before the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, he made his disciples an amazing promise. He, 
He promised, I will be back for you. I will be back for you. This is our promise for today, the promise of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This one promise is something that the whole Bible looks forward to. It's something that really the whole world looks forward to. It's something that certainly we who follow the Lord Jesus look forward to. This is an important promise. We find this doctrine taught explicitly in the Scriptures in a variety of places. Uh, Revelation chapter 19, we heard earlier from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Our memory verse this week comes from John 14, right before Jesus dies on the cross, he, he gathers his disciples in the upper room and he, he assures them with these words. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is such a comforting, such a hopeful promise from the lips of our Savior, is it not? These, these are words of destiny for those of us who have who have lost loved ones, for, for all of us who long for our eternal home, for, for, for all of us who have difficulties in this life. We, we need this promise. We need these words. The, the reason we need this, this, this promise here is because we, the people of God, we are a people in waiting. We are a people in waiting. We all know this instinctively. We all know that Jesus Christ has gone away and this world is not okay. In fact, let me put that on the screen for you. Jesus Christ has gone away, and this world is not okay. See, in this age, we live in what theologians call the already but the not yet tension. In this age, in Matthew 25, it says, the king has gone away to a far country and entrusted his servants with talents to to occupy until the master returns. And so we wait in this age between his first coming and his second coming Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 says, All things one day will be subjected underneath the feet of the Lord Jesus. But Hebrews 2, 8b says, But we do not yet see all things subjected underneath of his feet. And the reason is because Jesus has gone away and things are not okay. Things are not okay in this world. If anything is clear to us in this moment of history, it's this, is it not? Things exist like viruses. Diseases exist, like cancer. We look around and we see all of the sin and the hatred and the greed and the selfishness and the anger and the pride and the racism, and, and we see things like mass shootings. We look around and we see pride and malice and jealousy and lust and addiction, and we groan inwardly and we say, how long, O oh Lord? Because we know Jesus Christ has gone away, and this world is not Okay. And so we, the people of God, are a people in waiting. But while we are waiting, we wait with this promise that he will return. There's such an important promise in the word of God. Now, there's a lot that we can cover regarding the doctrine of the second coming. We could cover the millennial views, and we could cover the, the views of the rapture. And, and there's a time and a place for that teaching. But I want to focus in here today on how this promise makes a difference in our lives. See, the theme of this series is how the promises of God are this anchor in the storms of life. And so with that lens, I want to look at this promise today from one particular passage in 2 Peter chapter 3. If you happen to have an inspired copy of the Word of God, please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, a text where the Apostle Peter will speak about the end of all time. And today I want to look at three benefits of the promise of his return here. The promised return uh, brings us comfort. 
if we have a grieving heart. His promised return brings peace to the angry spirit, and His promised return brings motivation to live a godly life. In other words, perhaps you're here today and you need this comfort because you know what it is to endure an illness or a lifetime uh, struggle or an injury, or you know what it is to have lost a loved one even recently, or you know what it is right now to be facing a diagnosis and perhaps to be looking at the end of your life, and you, you're, you're, you're living with some measure of fear and anxiety, and if that's you, I want you to listen to this promise today because it's for you. Or perhaps you're here today and you're, you're struggling because you know that you've been wronged in your life and you're not really sure that this is ever going to be made right. And you want to know, how do I deal with this injustice without being soaked up by the bitterness and consumed by it? You, if that's you, you need to listen to this promise today because it's for you. And so here in this text, we're going to find these three things, comfort and peace and motivation. But in this text, I also want you to look for two other questions. Two questions. I'm indebted to my seminary professor, Dr. Jeff Bingham, for pointing out these two questions. There's a bad question, and then there's a good question. You're going to notice in the text today that there's a wrong question, and then there's a right question. And so watch for those in the text when they come up. So that's where we're headed. That's a tall order. Why don't we pray and ask for the Lord's help? Would you pray with me? Dear God, we are here. You have our attention. We are a people who long for your glorious return, but we are also a people who are aware that you have gone away and things are not okay. So help us, would you, to, to meditate on this promise today in a deeper way. I, I pray for, for an increased sense of expectancy in your people. Help us to also consider how this promise should impact our present life today. Speak, Lord for your servants are listening. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, uh, Peter begins with these words. We'll put them on the screen as well. Peter says this, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Let's pause there. Now here's what Peter is saying. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the prophets already made predictions that have already come true. Don't you remember? The prophets spoke about this Savior that was to come. Don't you remember in Genesis 3.15, they said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Don't you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord promised David that one of his children would reign on his throne forever. Don't you remember that Isaiah the prophet in chapter 53 said that there would be a suffering servant who would come and live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death for the sins of his people. Over and over and over, the prophets had proclaimed this same message. A rescue was coming. A freedom was coming. A Messiah was coming. And then he came. He came, he, he actually came, and this Jesus shows up and fulfills everything that they said, every jot and tittle, dozens and dozens and dozens of very, very specific prophecies about the life of this Messiah, where he would be, be born, regarding prophecies regarding his, his, his lineage, certain prophecies about his ministry, definitely a lot of prophecies about his sacrificial death and, and resurrection. There's very strong evidence for the Christian faith just with regards to predictive prophecy that's already been fulfilled in the past. And so Peter's point here 
in explaining this new promise, the promise of his return, is he's saying that our hope in this future promise to be fulfilled is actually not primarily grounded in the future, it's primarily grounded in the past. Don't you see, Peter says, God has already kept his word. Australian theologian Graham Goldsworthy said, hope without a time of fulfillment is a delusion. But listen, Peter says, when we talk about his return, we are not being delusional. This is not pie in the sky. This is not opiate for the masses. Peter says, no, no, we're not gambling here, hoping it all works out, which is what people on the outside will think that we're doing. People on the outside will think that we are delusional. People on the outside will think that we are actually absurd, and I get that. But that's largely because they are unregenerate. That's largely because they are rebelling against the God of heaven and they have not acknowledged his presence in their lives even though they are breathing his air. That's largely because they are rebelling against this king of the universe and they have no reverence or respect for the word of God or the promises of God as we do. But we who have been born from above, Peter says, we know differently, don't we? We who have been born from above hold on to this new promise as an anchor that will get us through the most difficult storms in our lives. Which brings us, I think, to the first benefit of the promise of his return. This promise brings great comfort to the grieving heart. Friends, the world needs this hope, and we have it. The promise of his return has brought great comfort for generations of believers. We, we heard earlier from 1 Thessalonians 4 that we are to comfort one another with these words, the words of his return. Can I ask, what other earthly resource is there that can compare with this promise? What can a secular therapist offer the grieving heart that can compare with this promise? Clinical psychologist Dr. Ken Houck, the founder of Stephen Ministries, says, sometimes I feel like writing Sigmund Freud a letter, and here's what I would say. Dear Sigmund, I admit that the techniques and insights you and your followers have developed are vital for the treatment of troubled people, but there are questions of life, death, meaning, and spirituality that you never touch. Sincerely, Ken. And so, Friends, the human heart needs some assurance of outcome. And our world needs this deeper hope, this deeper comfort. Think of the state of our world right now. Think of where we are in the state of New Jersey. Over 20,000 people have passed away because of this virus. In the face of all this sickness and all of this disease and all of this death that surrounds us every day, when this crisis is over, we're going to be facing a lot of people who are hurting and who are grieving all that has just happened. Dr. Tim Clinton, the, the president of the American Association of Christian Counselors, said this weekend, we are not facing a mental health crisis in this country. We are about to face a mental health disaster in this country. Now think about what an opportunity that is for the church. Here we have this hope, the greatest hope in all of the world, this promise, and we get to share it. We need to get vaccinated with this hope and share it with everybody we know. Do you have this hope in you? This hope is living. This hope is active. It's dynamic, and it is inside every one of the children of God. Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's an exciting time to be a believer. 
In fact, I think we're beginning to see the time of his return drawing more and more near right in front of my eyes. One example, there's a ministry group called Illuminations. And what they've done is they've gotten together the different Bible translation ministries and they've gotten them all to finally work together like Wycliffe and the American Bible Society and all the, all the organizations, they're all working together through Illuminations and they have a vision, they have a goal and their goal, the project that they're working on is to get the Bible translated in every human language. And they say within the next 10 years, for the first time in human history, the Bible will be available in every single human language known to man. Okay, that's pretty exciting and that's also a little scary for those of us who are familiar with the word of, this is in our lifetime. This has never happened before in human history. And if you take the Bible seriously, the Lord Jesus told us in, in the Olivet Discourse that this gospel would be preached to every tribe, nation, and language, and then the end will come. But the Bible says the last days will be like the days of Noah. People will just be buying, selling, eating, drinking, doing their own thing. They're not expecting this, but... Most people don't know these things. But if you know these things, then the Bible says you don't need to be terrified by them. He says, when you start seeing these things, the Lord Jesus said, you need to lift up your head for your redemption draws near. I think we need to wake up. I think now, maybe more than ever in my lifetime, God is calling the church to wake up. So we don't see these things and we go, oh, no, 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 no. We see these things and we go, whoa, this is crazy. Everything that I've been studying my whole life is actually coming to fruition and being fulfilled in front of my very eyes. It's exciting. All the promises of God are yes and amen. And then Peter goes on to say in verse 3, he says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Notice Peter points out that there were and are these people that he calls scoffers. They were around in Peter's day. They are around in our day as well. Peter says these scoffers will always be asking the wrong question. Did you catch the wrong question? The wrong question is, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, is he really coming? You can't possibly believe that he's still coming. That's a bad question, Peter says. Because with that question, do you see what they have done? They have scoffed at our entire belief system and they have questioned the very truthfulness and trustworthiness of God himself. They are denying that God's word is trustworthy. And by extension, they are denying that God himself is trustworthy. They are denying that what God says is what he will do. And so therefore there, there are these people that are asserting that we as human beings do not have promises from God that we are to live by. And Peter says that is a very dangerous proposition. But it's a proposition that these scoffers put forth and it's a proposition that still exists in our day. Peter goes on to explain the problem with this way of thinking. I'll take a look at verse 5. He says, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, 
the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So I want you to notice very carefully these words on the screen. Peter is rebuking these scoffers, and he's doing so in a couple of different ways. First of all, notice in verse 5. Peter is saying that the trustworthiness of God's word in the past should give credence to the trustworthiness of God's word in the future. After all, he says in verse 5, look around at God's creation. We already know in the beginning that when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of creation, that God spoke his word And when he did that, when God spoke, his word became very, very effectual. Whenever God spoke, whenever God's word just pierced pierced the silence, something was created. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and land, and sky, and stars, and seas, and heavenly bodies, and earthly plants and creatures of all kinds on land and sea, and even humankind himself. Every time God speaks, something was created. This is the power of the word of God. Whenever God's voice shatters the silence, it's powerful. Because when God's word goes forth, it is never ineffectual. So Peter is saying here that because God's word spoke in creation and brought things into being, This is proof that his word will bring things into being in the future as well. And so he rebukes these scoffers for their contempt for the very word of God that was present in creation. But then in verse 6, he, Peter, says the word of God did not just bring about creation. Don't you realize that God spoke a different word in the book of Genesis and brought about judgment as well? You see, verse 6 talks about how on the one hand, God's word brings about creation, but on the other hand, his word has also brought about destruction. You see, again, though, it's his word that brings both of these things into being, and it's his word that takes things out of their state of being. God's word creates, and then God's word decreates. But one thing is for sure, Peter says, God's word is very, very effectual. And so Peter is saying, because his word was effective in the past, surely it will be effective in the future when he promises to return. And so in verse 7, when he says, one day the earth will be burned up with fire when he returns to judge this world, this promise is from his word too. And it could be trusted as well. The prophet Isaiah said his word never returns void. See, we will see later in verse 13 of this chapter, and we were already told by the prophet Isaiah actually in chapter 65, that there's coming a day in which God will create a new heavens and a new earth, and all of these things will melt with fervent heat. Friends, do you realize, do you understand? Peter says that this whole world is on a trajectory heading towards the judgment of God. Do you realize that on that day, nothing else will matter on this planet besides his word and his people? But here's the problem. See, here's the sad truth. There is glitter in this world, in this place that John Bunyan called Vanity Fair. And the problem that Peter knows is that you and I can sometimes become delighted in something else. And we will lose focus sometimes on what actually matters. And we become consumed sometimes with the trappings of this world 
We become consumed sometimes with possessions and prestige and power and we become consumed sometimes with the newest technology. We become consumed with the pleasures of vacation. and Whatever it is, we become consumed with the things of this world. But when we do that, Peter says, we're losing focus on what matters. We've forgotten that this world is not our home. And we get sidetracked. We're looking for comfort from the weariness. We're looking for some source of comfort. And the reason we're weary is the same reason. It's because Jesus Christ has gone away and this world is not okay. But Peter says, you are to long for him and not find comfort in earthly pleasures. This is where leaning into the promise of his return comes into play and becomes so important to us. So let me just ask you, where are you weary in your life and where do you need to be leaning into the promise of his return? Where in your life do you need to realign your heart towards what really matters in eternity? Peter goes on to say in verses 8 and 9, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so here, Peter is addressing these scoffers again, saying that I know you're looking around and you see a delay, and you think the delay means that God's word can't be trusted. But Peter says, no, that's not true at all. All of, that, all of the delay really, all the delay really implies is that God's timing is not on your timing. That's the only thing it means. Have you heard the joke about the guy who approached God one time and he asked God, God, is it true that a million dollars to you is just like a penny? And God says, yeah. And he says, okay, well, is it true that like a, a million years to you is just like a second? And God says, yeah. He says, I got one more question. God, can I just borrow one penny? And God says, yeah. Just wait a second. <laughs> These are the jokes, folks. Okay, the point here is that God's timing is not our timing. Peter says the reason for his apparent delay is not because of any slowness on God's part. It's simply because of his patience. You see, the Lord is not without virtue. He is trustworthy, but the Lord is not without kindness either. The Lord is not without forgiveness either. The Lord is not without love and graciousness and goodness and mercy either. And the reason why his coming hasn't happened yet, scoffers, is not because God is not trustworthy. And it's not because God is passive. And it's not because God is somehow inactive. And it's certainly not because God is disinterested. Rather, the only reason, Peter says, why the Lord is delaying his return is because God is patient. And that is the only reason. And so Peter says, to misunderstand his patience here is to become a fool. Instead, the wise person is the one who understands that God is virtuous and his character involves patience and love and forgiveness, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to him in repentance. This is the character of God. And so their scoffing of God who will not fulfill his word has been shown to be utterly ridiculous. But yet Peter rebukes their scoffing again in a different way. He says this in verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth 
and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, God is a patient God, but Peter says his patience is actually not everlasting. As he says, one day the elements will melt with fervent heat. Why? Because God is a virtuous being and and he cannot tolerate iniquity and sin forever. He is a just God. In fact, the promise of his return is rooted in the very character of God himself. This is a serious passage. And the return of Christ is a wonderful hope that we as his followers have. But it's also a frightening passage in some ways for those who don't know the Lord Jesus as their personal savior. As he will come the second time, not as savior, but as judge. He will return again the second time, not as the lamb, but as the lion. And so Peter says, the past word of God was proven reliable in creation, and his future word will be reliable in recreation. And the past judgment of God, which was given by the word of God, occurred, implies that the future judgment of God will occur by his same word, when on that day, everything, he says, will be exposed and laid bare, and everyone must give an account. Which leads us to the second benefit of his return today. His return brings peace to the angry spirit. See, oftentimes you hear this idea that this doctrine, the return of Christ and eschatology and, you know, God coming to our world to rule and to reign and to judge, that's going to make people really angry and really, really vengeful. And it, it will cause people to disdain certain classes of people. You probably heard earlier this week on the news there was this terrible shooting where an evil man committed a a heinous mass murder in the Atlanta area. Just an absolute tragedy, an affront to the image of God, an attack on human dignity, and we ought to speak out against that terrible atrocity. But there was this one narrative in the news that really disturbed me about this story. And I read this article from the Washington Post, and they were trying to make a connection between this man's sinful, evil actions and his Baptist faith specifically tied to his eschatology and belief in the return of Christ. And their misguided article, their misguided thinking was that if you believe that, then that's going to lead to this kind of behavior. And can I say with all due respect that that's actually the opposite of what this doctrine teaches? The opposite. Instead, the return of Christ teaches us never to take these matters into our own hands, but rather to leave them in the capable hands of a holy and just God. The scriptures say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, this doctrine, the return of Christ, can actually bring peace, not a spirit of anger and judgment and revenge. One time I was really struggling with some hard feelings towards somebody who really did something that was wrong, and, and then that person passed away. And I didn't know what to do with the feelings because it was never made right. And I was, as I was talking to a respected mentor, I explained the situation, and I said, you know, it's just so sad to me that this is the way it all ended, that it was never made right, that, that this is the end. And in his wisdom, he looked back at me and said, don't you know that that's not the end? Aren't you a believer? Don't you realize that the judge of all the earth will do what is right? Now, I don't know the condition of this man's heart at the end. I hope it was right with the Lord. But I took that to mean that I can trust God with justice. I don't have to worry about that. And I can find peace. 
See, it's actually, some people don't understand. If, if you've ever been really wrong by somebody, I mean, really wrong, the only way to let go of anger and bitterness is to trust in this promise. The only way to let it go is to trust that God will make it right. It's actually when you don't believe in that that things get out of control and you start taking matters into your own hands. The only way to break the cycle of revenge, the only way to get rid of the rage, the only way to really find peace is to step back and believe, I think one day God's going to return as king and make this all right. And that allows us to find peace. It allows us to wait. It allows us to be patient. Why? Because we trust in this promise of his return. And so, and so Peter has rebuked these scoffers in a few important ways, just by way of review. First of all, he said that God's promised return is not just rooted in the future, it's rooted in the past. After all, so many other prophecies have already been fulfilled. Second of all, he told us that when God speaks a word, it's very powerful, both in creation and judgment. Therefore, his word in the future, his word of return, his promise of return will be powerful as well. And then thirdly, he says this promise of his return and the delay is actually rooted in the very character of God himself. Peter has told us that God is a just God. But right now in the present, Peter says he is showing you his character by being patient with you even right this very moment. And with all of these arguments, Peter looks back at the scoffers face to face, eye to eye, and says, you are fools. But the scoffers will always be with us. They were there in the first century. They are there in our century as well. They will write articles. They will be there with their blogs. They will be there with their books. They will be questioning this promise. They will be questioning the reliability of the word of God. The scoffers will come and they will question the validity of this book. They will say that this book is harmful if you believe it. The scoffers will come with their scoffing. They will say that this, this book has been corrupted, that this book needs to be corrected, that this book is, is full of errors inside. The scoffers will always come with their scoffing. They were there back in the first century and they are there with us. They are here with us today. But our brother Peter has shown us that God's word is true. He, he told us in chapter 1, verse 21, for no such prophecy was ever brought by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we recognize along with our brother, the Apostle Peter, that this book contains promises that we can count on, that all of his promises are yes and amen, that this book does not contain errors, that this book is inerrant, that this book does not mislead, that this book is trustworthy. And we believe that all of the promises of God will be fulfilled. And so when it comes to God's word of future judgment and his return, the only thing really the scoffers ought to do is listen to the prophet Isaiah who said this, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Isaiah the prophet said, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Let me put that on the screen for you. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Isaiah says, tremble in your seats when God speaks. What he says will happen, will happen. His words are true. This is the same word of God that brought the whole world into existence. This same word will one day bring the world under judgment. And so we've seen the wrong question. We've seen the wrong question that Peter says the scoffers keep asking is, where is the promise of his coming? And now we get to the right question. And now we get to the correct question. We find the right question in verse 11. 
Peter says this, since, since all these things, let me put this on the screen for you, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Did you catch the right question? See, the wrong question, remember, is where is the promise of his coming? But the right question, Peter says, is since he is coming, what sort of people ought you to be? That's the right question. That is the right question. The wrong question is, can God's promises be trusted? The right question is, can you be trusted? The wrong question is, does God's word have integrity? The right question is, do you have integrity? The wrong question is, does God's word have virtue? The right question is, do you have virtue? Peter says. The wrong question is, where is the promise of his coming? The right question is, since he's coming, what sort of person ought you to be? That's the right question. Peter says you ought to live a life of holiness and godliness, waiting patiently for him to return. Which leads us to the third and final benefit of believing in this promise. His promised return brings motivation to live a godly life, a life that's pleasing to him. One of the things I've enjoyed is studying eschatology. One of my professors at DTS, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, made an amazing statement one time that I've never forgotten. I've forgotten many other things he taught us, but I never forgot this one. He said, whenever you see the second coming in the Bible, notice it's always accompanied by a call to godly living. It's never accompanied by, hey, why don't you just look out the window? When the Bible talks about the second coming, it never says, and what you should do is make a chart and have a debate. Now, those things are well and good. We need teaching. I understand that. But the main thing, the primary reason why the second coming is taught in the scriptures is a motivation towards being ready for him to return and a life of godly living, which brings me to me and you. What sort of people will we be? Peter says this in verse 14 as he concludes, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Brothers and sisters, the return of Christ the doctrine of the second coming is a call to renew our faith in this blessed hope and increase our faith in this promise, the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to fix our eyes, not on the trappings of this world and vanity fair, not on our circumstances, not on our government, not on the glitter that exists on this planet, but to fix our eyes on this Jesus who will return for us. We're reminded of the words of the Nicene Creed who said, we believe from thence he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. This is a really good promise. This is a really important promise. I want you to remember these six words from the Lord Jesus to you. Before he left, 
he promised us all, I will be back for you. I will be back for you. Let me put that on the screen for you. I will be back for you. Friends, Jesus Christ has gone away. And this world is not okay. But it will be. It will be. Let me invite the worship team to come and lead us. And as they do, let me just ask you very plainly, are you ready for his return? Because really the scriptures tell us very plainly that the only way for you to ever be ready for his return is to first initiate your own return. Is to first initiate your own return back to this God of love and mercy and patience. You see, the Bible says that all of us have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. And the worst news is that the wages of sin is death. That that's our paycheck. That's what we get for sin. We get death. Now, whenever you see the word death in the Bible, it means separation. Separation from the soul, from the body. But the death referred to here in Romans 6.23 is a separation of the soul from God for eternity. That's the wages of sin. That's the bad news. But the good news is this. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That in a sense, there was this great exchange. He lived the life that I should have lived and died the death that I deserved. But instead, he offered that very righteousness to me as a gift if I would just place my faith in him. That's the gift of the gospel. But not everybody receives that gift. You say, Pastor Dave, how do you receive that gift? You receive that gift by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, we are saved through faith. You place your trust in Christ and Christ alone. Just like you place your trust in that chair today, choosing to sit there, trusting that that chair would hold you up. You place your trust in Christ, trusting that his work on your behalf was sufficient, and it was. And you come to him to be ready for his return. First, you must make your own return. And you say, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. If that's you, if you'd like to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, if you're watching online and you never made that decision, I would be honored to lead you in that decision today. In fact, let's bow our heads and close our eyes together. Heavenly Father, we pause for just a moment, knowing that these are holy things, that these promises are serious things, and we want to be right with you, for we will all stand before you one day. And I pray for my friends that they would be clothed in your righteousness alone on that day, having placed their faith in you. If you've never done that, with every head bowed, every eye closed, would you just pray to God in your own heart, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I know if I stand before you, I'm guilty. I know it. And I believe, Lord Jesus, you died on the cross. I believe you forgave me for all my sins. I want to make you my Savior and my Lord. And for all of us, Heavenly Father, we've gathered here in this place to remind ourselves of this amazing promise. Help us to live in watchful waiting of your return. Would you, would you find us faithful, living lives of holiness and godliness, lifting up our heads for our redemption draws near? We're looking forward to when you descend with a shout and we'll forever be with you. Until then, God, help us to realign our hearts to live for eternity. We ask this for Christ's sake and for his reputation, we pray. Amen.